Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and we are live. We are on Hopin. We are on Twitter Spaces. We may even be on YouTube. Who knows? But I'm here with my friends because it is a Thursday recording for a Friday show, and that means I have Natasha Moscarenas here. Natasha, hello. Hello, hello. I have a mimosa and cardamom candle going right now. So like that's the energy I'm bringing to today's live show. Nice. I, I really was hoping you were going to stop after a mimosa and just have a mimosa on the <laughs> show because that would be that would be aggressive for a Thursday morning, but I'd be here for it. Uh, Marianne, do you have a uh, cocktail themed candle as well? Just my nope. homemade latte. Yeah, you got your coffee machine back. I feel yes. like the listeners want of to know. Course. So you're back like immediately I had one. <laughs> yeah. Marianne might be the only person in the world who consumes more espresso per day than I do. <laughs> and I think she's doing the world's coffee industry a service. But quickly, guys, we're going to talk about the show. But first, TechCrunch apparently has some South by Southwest tickets. So if you are on the hop in, you have been entered into a raffle automatically to get one. And we will announce who gets it at the end. This is a thing we're doing apparently for a little bit because it's South by Southwest time. We're doing panels. And if you want to go, we have maybe a ticket for you. Also, Marianne is going to be there. So Marianne, are you going to like say hi to people in person? You know, honestly, it falls... During my kids' spring break every single year. So next year, I will be busy and out and out of town, hopefully, for most of it. But today, I will be there interviewing Alex Mashinsky at 2.30 Central Time. Great day. Okay, everyone go ask for Marianne's autograph. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Marianne loves to be accosted in public. It's her favorite thing. Okay, so what is on the show today, guys? We're talking about AngelList Venture and some capital there. We're talking about Mara. We're talking about public buying Otis. Then we're going to riff into the better.com situation because it is yet again back on our radar due to more missteps, you might want to say. Then we have notes on Acorns and Ken Insurance, a couple of consumer-focused fintechs. What's going on with the SPAC market and why are they not public yet? Then we're going to talk about African VC and we're going to wrap with some Q&A. So if you have stuff you want us to kind of like dive into. If you have questions about how I turned out to be so handsome, well, you can drop those into the hop in chat and we will get to them at the end, presuming that we don't burn through all of our time with our usual yammerings. So whew, let's start. Natasha, you're up first because Angelus Venture has made some news. Yes. So for people who haven't been tracking Angelist as neurotically as I have, you may have missed that Angelist used to be a company that people really knew and resonated with. It actually spun out its three divisions into separate companies, Angelist Venture being one of them in 2020. And that part of the company, which is probably the one that you've heard of most recently, it started rolling funds, helps with roll-up vehicles and a bunch of other stuff, has raised its first institutional round since spinning out. So they announced that they have raised a 100 million Series B with an B. asterisk. We don't, okay. we, we don't know what series it is. They've raised a $100 million round led by Tiger and Accomplice at a $4 billion valuation. They're also opening up a community round. To me, this was the tension I have been bugging Angelist about since I started covering them, I guess two years ago, of you guys are trying to unbundle venture, rebundle founder services. Why are you so allergic to venture capital? And until this week, they basically were. So things have changed and I'm, I'm catching up now to see what, what the deal is with AngelList. Yeah, I have a quick question. If this is their first institutional round and potentially their Series B, from whom did they raise prior to this? It's a great question and one that I think they're still figuring out the answer to. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> That, that is so ridiculous. I just want to point out the, the hilarity of us not knowing what a $100 million round is because a $100 million round back in the day wasn't kind of an A, B, or C round. That was an IPO, right? <laughs> that was the kind of money you would raise when you went public, when you graduated. And now we're trying to figure out if it might actually be an earlier stage round than a B, which is just to me indicative of where the market is. But a small data point, if you raise 
$100 million at a $4 billion valuation. You have sold, I think, is it 2.5% of your company? That's not a lot of dilution for nine figures of capital. And it just goes to show how, yes, people talk about there being a slowdown in venture this year, but eh, kind of. You know, Natasha, this round is, it feels very 2021 to me. Yeah, definitely. It feels very 2021. And I do think the fact that they raised in the current environment is emblematic in and of itself. We all have been talking about the late stage markets quieting down, not being a thing. And now the fact that AngelList, after never raising capital, has is noteworthy. I will say that the way they plan to use the venture capital is what we should all be thinking about and looking at going forward. When I talked to their CEO, Avalik Coley, a month ago now and asked him, are you ever going to raise? And he said no, because he said that they don't need money to hire. They don't want to hire and they don't really necessarily believe in taking on venture to grow in the way that venture traditionally helps companies grow. When we talked again this week, he said nothing changed, but but what, I'll, what I'm reading is like, he's viewing it more as Tiger is getting a portion of AngelList's equity to really cement a relationship between the most active startup investor and institutional partner that they could have mm-hmm. out there. And them who do at some point are really going to need a venture fund to help bring more assets under management to their platform, but also continue adding validity to what they're doing. So is yeah. Tiger investing in Angelus Ventures so that Angelus Ventures can back very early stage startups, which is what Tiger is also focused on, but maybe Angelus Ventures at an even earlier stage, or am I confused? I think so. Tiger announced this week that it is doing a, or actually Tiger didn't announce, the information broke a story, that Tiger is creating a $1 billion fund of funds in which it will back emerging fund managers. And this news came out the day after of Angelus taking some of that money. So I'm viewing it as, yes, Angelus got the Tiger stamp of approval, but Tiger has a great deal here. They just got a window into a really active pre-seed and seed database of startups raising, startups hiring. So I think that Tiger is just using this as yet another data point. The the same way we've seen a bunch of funds back other funds in order for competitive intelligence. Yeah. Yeah, There's too much money. Tiger has too much money. The fact that they put together a billion dollar fund of funds is indicative of how much money they're sloshing around. Fund of funds to me is when you you run out of ideas and you think, you know what we should do is go and put some money into people who have ideas so they can put money into other ideas so that way when the returns come in, it'll trickle up. Right. Eh, eh. Eh, it bores me. But I will say, Natasha, we did also cover the Lolita Taub new, is it Ganas Ventures this week? And I think it's important to note that we do cover some funds when they do kind of come together. Totally. Lolita's always stood out to me as being someone who actually is giving us data points on how community can lead to impact. In Ventures, she she has created so many tools and has both in high moments and low moments for her shown the power of community in helping her become now in charge of her own fund. So her new fund, I wrote about this week, they're raising a $10 million fund. I think they've closed 1 million so far and connecting the dots between Lolita and Angelist, other than the fact that she's going to be raising a community round from Angelist. (laughs) My head is broken. Oh, um, who else? I know. I mean, it's <laughs> all I'm thinking is it wasn't a great time to be an emerging fund manager. If you asked me a week ago, because mm. LPs were starting to get worried and let's, why, why don't we just put money into more proven out investors? Now we're seeing those proven out investors create fund of funds. So it's a good time to be an emerging fund manager again. <laughs> Nesting dolls of of money is how it feels. Like we're just shuffling around the same dollars. Maybe that's good. I'm like, to be clear, is it good to see Lolita raise a fund? Good to see more Latin American focused funds, more women led funds like huzzah. But like, I don't know. At some point it all gets a little bit kind of fungible to me. Whenever a a new major firm announces a $2 billion vehicle, I'm like, great. Yeah. And moving on. I just, cause they're all the same now. Like, oh, you know, Sequoia has $50 billion in the new fund. Cool. Yeah. And I just don't, I don't care. It's just less exciting than it used to be. 
Marianne, your deal of the week was a lot more, I guess, <laughs> down to earth and I guess accessible to someone who isn't necessarily interested in like the deep dynamics of venture. So tell us about Mara. Yeah, I mean, I really got into this story for a few different reasons. And you guys can probably relate to this. Like sometimes I wrote a ton of interesting articles this week, in my opinion, like interesting about interesting companies is what I mean. But this <laughs> yeah. one just really stood out to me, like that what they're trying to do, who's doing it, how they're doing it, all of it was just really compelling. So the company is called Mara, which is short for Maravilloso in Portuguese, which means marvelous. And one of the co-founders also co-founded 99, which was the first Brazilian unicorn, which is, I think it was like a ride hailing, kind of like Uber for Latin yeah. America. Mm. So this company, what they're trying to do is help people who live in the outskirts of like larger cities in Brazil get access to groceries and these kinds of products at wholesale prices and making it more accessible to them, making the products more affordable to them. So I love the mission, first of all, because any company that's trying to help people who don't traditionally have access to things that others more privileged do makes me happy because I think it's ridiculously unfair that people who live like in the core center of Sao Paulo pay less for groceries than the people who live in the outskirts who can't afford to pay so much for them. So that's what yeah. this company is trying to solve for. So it's teaming up with like merchants that already exist in certain pockets, neighborhoods, and those merchants will act as a delivery point where the groceries will be delivered there. The people can can order online from a website. They're not required to download an app, which is important because in Brazil, it's not so easy. It costs a lot of money to pay for storage. So they don't want to require that. They want to make it easy for people to just go on a website, order what mm -hmm. they want, go pick it up and pay less for it. It helps the merchants. They get foot traffic. They get a cut of the sales. And the fact that this is just going to help a population that really needs it just stood out to me. I, I love all of this, to be totally clear. I'm just curious about the margins for the company itself. Because if you're going to do wholesale prices and you're going to do this kind of distributed distribution model, that's a terrible sentence. I wouldn't write that one down, but I said it. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How much is left for the company itself to actually kind of command for itself? Because this won't be cheap. I There's know. a lot of moving parts here. I thought about that. But the good thing is that Ariel, the co-founder, you know, had a lot of experience in growing 99. So they're taking a similar model. They're going to take each region that they're working on and really focus on making that successful. I think he told me gross margin break even before they even move on to another area, another city. So they're growing in a very measured way. They're not operating at a growth at all cost mentality, which is very refreshing. And I think his experience along with his co-founder who also worked at 99 will really help them grow. They already have, they raised, let's see, $6 million in a round co-led by Canary and Caffeinated Capital and a bunch of other angels and investors. So this is, this is really interesting. And I think if they could grow this, not just in Brazil, but other regions of Latin America, it could be huge. Yeah. I think them saying that they aren't ever going to move on to another kind of geography until they hit gross margin break even is going to be really fun to track because then every time they expand, we actually yeah. know that there's power behind the expansion. Right. Uh, unless they change their mind yeah, and, and they, they don't. Or they and get close. Right. Yeah. I mean, there, there's so many ways to like justify it. And I think venture capital incentives always stress me out a little bit because I'm like, yes, you can have the best of intentions, but is it going to make you stop? But I mean, I will say... Food delivery has proven time and time and time again that it is so hard to do in a way that's profitable that maybe that's giving them more patience and grace to grow in this way than a company who started out a few years ago. 
Yeah, I'll be curious to see if the model of having distribution points that they bring stuff to and then you pick up from will actually change that economic structure, Natasha. Because if you don't have the person in the car making one-off deliveries, does that change the overall economics? It sounds like it should. I mean, of course, as we know, on the ground, things are often very different than how they seem from paper. I mean, they and they referenced that. They said, like, right now, last mile delivery is a very tough space to be in, especially where gas prices are going up and things like that. So I feel like this model, you know, has potential, but we'll have to see how it plays out. But I was super excited by it, by what they're trying to do. And I'll definitely be paying attention in the future. Yeah, I, I want to loop back to Natasha's point about venture incentives, kind of or venture economics. And if you wanted a kind of a metaphor about this, think that you're on a treadmill and then the treadmill keeps going faster and faster and faster. That is essentially venture demands. You have to keep growing. You have to grow more each year in, in dollar terms to keep that growth rate up as you kind of scale the business. And that's a tough treadmill or a slippy bit to be on. And so it's tough. It's difficult. Yeah, and the treadmill starts some... yelling at you at one point and then throws you off even. And then there's three <laughs> nerds with laptops by taking notes on how you're running and t- talking <laughs> shit about you on the site. That's us in this metaphor. <laughs> okay, that should actually be our new like logo. We need to like get some art going. <laughs> oh, I love this idea. <laughs> um, can I talk about public? I'm really excited about Please this one. Please do. Yes. I, I feel like I loved Otis's tagline, stock market for culture. So why is public getting into that? Yeah. Okay. So go back in time, 2020, 2021, savings and investing boom amongst consumers. A lot of folks ended up with extra cash. They kind of put it to work. They were bored. So they did a lot of trading. Public grew kind of alongside Robinhood with a different focus. Robinhood was options trading and payment for order flow incomes. Public kind of diverged and said, we're not going to do that. We're going to focus on community and we're going to kind of put off making money to the future. Fair enough. You know, it's a cool to take a different kind of take on the same market and we get to see kind of a natural experiment in the world. So time passes, public has scaled to 3 million users and they announced this week they bought Otis. Otis is a startup that raised, I think it was like 16, 16 and a half million dollars somewhere in there. And what Otis does is that it fractionalizes alternative assets and then lets people buy and trade pieces of them. And Mary, I know you wanted to talk about this. So let me pause, let you ask a question and I'll try to clarify what that means. Thank you. I'm just wondering if everybody listening understands exactly what fractionalized means. If you can help break that down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So a company issues, let's say shares of stock. Let's say there's a million of those and the company grows over time and suddenly each share of stock is worth $2,000. Well, hell, if you only have 50 bucks, you can't afford to buy into that company. But if you use a platform that allows for fractional share purchases, you can buy $50 worth of a share in that company and get exposure to that company or asset class without having to have the full ticket. And so what Otis wants to do is take that kind of model and bring it to things like shoes, for example, I was talking to the co-founder and CEO, founder and CEO, one of the two, uh, Michael. And he was like, look, we have on the platform a shoe. I think he said that Michael Jordan wore when he like dunked a ball, broke the rim. And there's like a piece of the backboard in the shoe. It's some sort of sports memorabilia thing that doesn't apply to me, but people are into it. You can buy a fractional share of that shoe on Otis. And if it appreciates, huzzah, if it doesn't, whatever. But it's another way to kind of put your money to work outside of just equities or I guess cryptos are kind of standard now, I think. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's helpful. As you're kind of describing that, it's reminding me a lot of like the conversations we had about people starting to get more comfortable in alternative asset ownership. Yeah. It sounds like public started by being like, we know you believe in like wanting an alternative type of asset, but what if we give you stocks in an alternative way, which I kind of really like. Like rethinking not just what people are investing in, but how much of that thing that they're investing in. Basically betting on like experimenting. Yeah. And so public will let you buy stocks. It'll let you buy crypto. And now with Otis, it's going to kind of bolt on this array of other stuff. So you can buy fractionalized NFTs and so forth. And there's a revenue side to this because public said, look, we're not going to take 
payment for order flow or PFOF revenues because we don't like the incentives there. And that was kind of okay. Like, you know, eh, it's hard to say no to revenue. You have to kind of fill that gap later on. And what Otis does is has kind of a transaction-based fee model, similar to like OpenSea or Coinbase. And so as people trade these alternative assets, money is generated. So if you take Otis's platform that makes some revenue, take public's user base and go smush, in theory, there's some revenue there that's going to be exciting. We'll have to see how it kind of plays out though. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things about this I think is really cool. I I feel like, again, it's opening up accessibility, giving people who don't have a ton of money to invest a way to still invest, even with whatever they may have. Also, it's an M&A in the fintech space. And I feel like this is something we're going to be seeing a lot more of over the next year or two. Although public didn't say how much they paid for it. I think you had a guess, right, Alex? Yeah. I mean, look, it raised 16 and a half million. They didn't disclose the sale price. So it's going to be between 40 and 80 million, probably weighted towards stock is my guess. I'm like my confidence interval. I'm just going to make it up 85%. Okay. So good. I mean, it's, it's kind of cool to see like that consumers don't have to get like either they invest in stocks or either they invest in alternative assets. Both is what happens when you have M&A. Mm-hmm. My petty question is, <laughs> is public early or late to doing something like this? Yo, Public is a weird company and I, it's not, it's <laughs> not a more. diss. It's actually kind of a compliment because if you were in public shoes and Robin Hood scaling and getting a lot of stick at the time from Congress and users about PFOF revenues and that business model, which by the way, took them all the way public, right? It hasn't gone so well since, but it did get them all the way there and say no to that. We're going to focus more on community. We're going to focus more on creating a place where you can learn and then buy things versus kind of like trade, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's bold, but it has put them in a, in a spot where they are strong on the user side. And I would say trailing or catching up on the yeah. revenue side. I mean, isn't okay. so Yield the, Street already doing something like this? I think. Probably. I think Who's so. Yield, Yield Street? I think Yield so. If my memories, if I'm recalling correctly. Yeah. I think I wrote you're, about you're the a fintech expert. I wrote so. about a similar deal and I believe it was Yield Street getting into something like this a few months ago, but don't hold me to that. Well, I wouldn't be surprised. And here's why. And I know we need to move on to the better.com stuff, but like fractionalizing in general, it's become more popular. Like a lot of consumer fintechs will let you buy a piece of a share in a company. Like Amazon just announced a stock split. And the reason why is because their stock went up to like $2,000 a share. So that's becoming a thing. And also I think alternative assets are getting more popular. You know, the millennial kind of Zoomer crew are just more comfortable buying things that are non-traditional, just given that we kind of haven't grown up with them per se, but I think we're just more in the mix, if you will. And so the combination of those two isn't a huge shock to see in the market. But let's pause from this funding round and M&A section, and let's talk about some themes. And Marianne, you're going to start because you're going to walk us into this one, but somehow better.com is back in the news. And how did we get here? Maybe is the right question to start with. Okay. Well, I I don't (laughs) think it's a big shock that better.com had more layoffs, right? I mean, after Mm -hmm. the the events of the past couple of months for those who've been paying attention or those who haven't. This saga kind of all started in earnest early December when Better.com laid off about 900 people or 9% of its workforce. Yep. Via or during a Zoom call, the way the CEO did it, Vishal Garg was condemned all over the world. The video went viral. Which, like, wow, what a moment yeah. to be in a tech CEO, have your layoffs go viral. What? <laughs> Right. I mean, uh, like I said, they're not (laughs) the first company to lay off people during a Zoom call, but I guess it was the way it was done. And then all sorts of things came out that some of it had been reported on, but just, you know, Vishal's reported history of verbal abuse of um, his employees. Emails came out where he was insulting investors, lawsuits filed against him for all sorts of things, and just on and on and on. So he ended up taking a break, break, where the company hired a crisis firm to help. 
We were all wondering, like, how does he still have a job? And a month later, he comes back. He's still CEO. A month, yeah. A month long break. What is this? An episode of Friends? Right. That's like, yeah, I feel like people do that. <laughs> Sorry to date myself there, but like, I really do feel like this is a Ross and Rachel situation. Sorry, Marianne, back to you. No, no, no. I'm trying, like, I'm just trying to, I don't want to overdo it with the history, but it's good context. So, you know. Yeah, no. During, Please handhold us. <laughs> yeah, during this whole time, like, bunch of people are resigning, ton of senior executives were resigning. The company's just like slowly sort of falling apart, to be honest. In the meantime, market conditions are getting worse. Better.com is a digital lender, mortgage lender. It was really big on refinancings, which was really huge 2020, and then started to dip in 2021 as interest rates started to climb. So its business took a large hit. Yep. So with fewer people refinancing and also people struggling in general just to purchase with a higher interest rates, it's been suffering. And you combine that with a hit to its reputation that occurred in December, its business hasn't been doing well. So I heard that it was going to lay off thousands of people this week, which let me be clear, it is not fun as a reporter ever to cover layoffs. Like it sucks. And we always feel we don't enjoy it. Just you know, we enjoy getting scoops. We don't enjoy writing about people getting laid off, just to make that clear. Yes. I had heard about 4,000 and it ended up being just over 3,000 people. All right. So again, understandable market conditions, f***ed up situation. You're going to have some layoffs. But what Better.com did is manage to make it even worse <laughs> because they sent severance checks out through their payroll app after midnight before anyone was even notified that they were being laid off and then realized their mistake and then took them back. So for oh, people, they took them back. Oh yeah. Until they announced it for some. So sort. that's where we're at today. Well, basically. Yeah. Wow. So, so here's what I believe happened. I don't know for sure. They were originally planning to lay off people on one day and then realized that that had kind of leaked. So they moved it to like another day, but forgot to change that in the payroll system. So severance checks started going out too early. Now for the employees who've already been through hell and back, this was just like insult to injury. I had people oh, emailing yeah. me, commenting on my LinkedIn post about how disgusted they were with how everything had been handled. They felt completely disrespected. You know, it just, it couldn't get much worse at better.com. <laughs> a, uh, a soft bank company. A SoftBank company. Throwing yeah. that in there. Because Marianne, they raised last April, May, somewhere in there. Yeah, last year they raised about $500 million, I think it was. Was it all from SoftBank? I don't remember, but it was a, a big chunk was from SoftBank. Yeah. 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 They were going to go public via SPAC. That's definitely on hold. I don't think going public will happen anytime soon for this company if it even manages to survive all this. Yeah. And there are comparisons to WeWork, right? Another kind of prop tech or real estate tech company that was soft being backed with a very eccentric or controversial CEO. So there are definitely some parallels there. Yeah. So like my, after reading your coverage literally for the past like few months, I at first was like, okay, we're seeing what we are seeing with a lot of growth stage companies. They grew too fast, they have to scale back, blah, blah, blah. But now I'm at a spot where I feel like it's, it's very different than just a growth stage company being a little too spendy. It's a company that missed the correct business model, lost top talent and has a shitty culture. And that feels a lot harder to recover from than, oh, yeah. than a company that just had to have a heart to heart moment and really rebuild its processes. And I think that's kind of what's different about better right now. Mm -hmm. Think about Airbnb. Airbnb 
Airbnb had a catastrophic start to COVID. They had to lay off a bunch of stuff and then they did it, I think in pretty good format. Like they were super upfront about it. They paid a lot of money out. They were like, look, this is just what happened. Sorry. And it was generally not well received, but about as well received as it could be, which is I think indicative of what happened next to the company, which was strong performance, good execution and a recovery, if you will, because Natasha's right. They didn't have a completely shattered culture essentially surrounding one asshat who was the CEO. And it's amazing how culture does, in fact, matter at companies, shockingly enough. Oh, so absolutely. Well, I mean, who that worked at Better.com after the mess in December had any motivation? Who had any pride, honestly, anymore in their job? Like, yeah. I, I would venture to say it's very few people. And it's a really sad situation. I, I feel terrible for those laid off. I hope they bounce back. We'll have to see what happens next with the company. I always feel weird when I'm like trying to extract a lesson from layoff. So I think the tone you're striking, Marianne, is like spot on. But as I read your story, I was kind of like shook by the fact that you can be a $6 billion company and still need to cut half of your staff or near half of your staff. Look, I brought this up on the planning call. I'm going to bring it up again. How did they have so many people? If they're a digital technology company, herp, derp, derp, how did they need like 10,000 humans around to do mortgage originations? Unless it wasn't a tech company and it was in fact a services shop with technology kind of like painted on the top. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they had employees largely in the US and India and a lot of them, you know, were related to servicing loans, as you point out, and sales and customer service, that kind of thing. So I don't, you know, when we talk about thousands and thousands of employees, it wasn't like all very, very high level positions, but yeah, still quite a lot. I think they were very ambitious in hiring and a little overly ambitious in what was going to happen in the future, short-sighted about the potential, you know, like what was going to happen when interest rates went up. Yeah. Well, I have their SPAC deck pulled up right here. And I'm just going to point out that for 2022, when the SPAC deck was put together, their estimated company revenue for the year was going to be $2.705 billion. So let's see how close they get. Whoa. The answer is going to be not very close. Not at uh, all. Let's. Oh, Marion, before we move on, there is another better.com story on the happier note, which is the, what's going on with Glean AI. Can you give us just kind of a yeah, quick... Yeah, I'll be quick. Um, yeah, a former uh, CFO, I think he left maybe a year and a half or two ago. He was also CFO at OnDeck at one time. He realized... Oh, nice. Yeah, 10 years, he's, he'd been a CFO. He was like, you know, we're doing this really wrong. Like, he was like looking at spreadsheets. And at one point, he said it took three weeks to identify $1.5 million in potential savings. And, you know, it was just took too long. He, he noticed all sorts of things that could have been done better, like redundant subscriptions, you know, paying for things that like, say there was a trial, and then you ended up not really needing it, but forgot to cancel the trial, you know, all sorts of line items that people just quite frankly miss. And so he said about starting a company that uses AI to like automate this process, make it much faster and help companies save money so they can spend it on other things like hiring more engineers or product development and things like that. So it's a cool, I think it's a cool concept. He definitely has experience and he he teamed up with someone with a strong background in data science and they raised $10.8 million in combined pre-seed and seed funding. Well, we'll see what we can understand from that company going forward. Or right. glean. Glean. Yeah. glean from that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess moving on to our next section, we're going to talk about SPACs. Better.com had a SPAC delay, but that's not the first we're seeing happening in fintech these days. Alex, do you want to run us through the high level and then let's unpack? Yeah, I just want to point out that Ramp is also working on this idea of like saving 
money from people, eliminating duplicate subscriptions and so forth, which I think it just goes to show how far the SaaS economy has gone when many people are trying to save money on subscriptions. Just a data point. Right. Okay. On the SPAC front, stuff has happened. So Acorns, which is no longer going public via SPAC, Marianne, that was announced back in January, I believe. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. They put together an enormous new round. We'll get to that in a second. Also, Ken Insurance, another company that was supposed to go out via SPAC and no longer is, also raised some money. And so what we are seeing here, and I think this matters, is that companies that were potentially going to go public via SPAC during the SPAC boom have pulled back from that because the SPAC result pool, if you will, is stagnant and covered in pond scum. And so they want to avoid that if at all possible. The good news is these companies are still backable, essentially. So Marianne, they're not running out of capital. They're just finding it from a different source. And Acorns at a price that we thought made a lot of sense. Yeah. The company raised $300 million in a Series F round, valuing them at nearly $2 billion. TPG, a private equity firm, led the financing. They want to use it towards a lot of M&A. I think to your point, Alex, they realized that it probably wouldn't be the smartest move right now to go public for two reasons via SPAC because A, SPACs are not performing. Companies who've gone public via SPAC are pretty much not performing very well. So, and then B, they could raise money, a good amount of money and still continue pretty much at the same valuation they were planning to go public at. So they're still eyeing the public markets, but they want to do it via traditional IPO at some point. Yes. I have a theory on what's happening and I have no proof on this theory other than like my cynicism. And it's that, you know how like we, we talked about this with bankers leaking acquisition rumors or bankers leaking a company's plan to direct list. I wonder if these companies who are like, yeah, we're thinking about SPACs are kind of giving that as a signal that they are in the late stage capital raising market and are then raising money off of that. And the reason I think that is like, it doesn't hurt to delay your SPAC. Obviously, they're raising lots of money on great valuations for it. So why not say it really loudly and then people will probably come knocking on your door saying, hey, don't SPAC yet. We'll give you capital. That's just like, I don't know. That's I mean, a theory it, I have. It could be. It could be with some companies. I mean, Noah Kerner, the Acorn CEO, was like, oh, we had a dry run at going public. I, I don't know if I would do that again. You know, kind of insinuating that it was a pretty tough process to end up not yeah. going through with it. But, you know, who knows? Who knows what's really happening behind the scenes at other companies that have decided not to go move forward with SPAC. What I find disappointing is that when I read your story about Acorns, Marianne, was the dearth of data that they were willing to share because we have their old SPAC deck. So I have tons of historical information. And then the moment they were going to raise privately again, they're like, yeah, we're not going to tell you anything. Yeah. No news for you. No soup Ugh. for you. And it's like, you can't put a ba- the toothpaste back in the tube. Like st- I know. you almost went public. I tell know. me how you're doing. It was pretty but- disappointing. I mean, he, he claimed they had beat revenue estimates for the year, but that's still not saying much. So I too was disappointed in not getting more, more hard figures there. Definitely. Alex, do you think that we're going to see startups stay private even longer now that SPACs are disappearing and the late stage market? Or I guess like companies were already staying private long when the public markets were fun. So now what? Sorry, before you get into it, I just it just hit me. I mean, SPAC is now a four-letter word, right? Am I wrong? <laughs> Beautiful. It, 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 it always was. That's the thing. They were called blank check companies. They were trash cans because they took out the garbage. And then suddenly Chamath made them cool somehow and everyone lost their mind and decided that somehow this was a new and improved way of doing business. And it turns out, no, it was just a trash can with a paint job. And right. so, you know, you can polish the turd, but it doesn't, you know. Sorry, apologies for interrupting. Natasha was asking you a question, though. No, no. I think that that's like an answer in and of itself. <laughs> that SPACs are not a thing <laughs> anymore. But yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm just thinking about like an early stage startup now. And I'm like, okay, you already had an opportunity to go public. Now that's even harder. So are we all going to be private forever and never get any data ever? 
Well, we can't never get any data ever because there are so many unicorns worth so many hundreds of billions of dollars that have to find an exit point. And the list is getting really small because the IPO window is effectively closed because markets are in freefall. The SPAC boom is kaput and M&A has antitrust regulation looming over its shoulder. So what do you do? I guess you don't go public, but eventually you have to. There's going to come a point when the tensions in the private market will break and they will have to find a way to exit these companies. I don't think anyone knows what to do. I don't think anyone knows what's coming. And when you talk to VCs about this, they kind of shrug their shoulders and go, well, well our companies are fine. Whatever. The point we'll is see. Ken Insurance failed to go out via SPAC or decided not to. They raised some money. Their public comps are garbage. So they're probably a year and a half, two years away. Acorns? probably a year and a half to two years away. I just, how long can this go on? I've been worried about this since 2016. So the answer is a long time, but certainly eventually we have to see some more IPOs. So I don't know when that happens, Natasha, but at some point. Okay. I mean, I'll take it. I think yeah. that like the fact that the tension isn't disappearing is interesting and keeps definitely all of our jobs very <laughs> exciting. Yeah. Do you know what I miss though? I miss waking up every morning and before I did anything else, I sit on the desk and I wouldn't even check podcast stats or web traffic. I would just go refresh the S1 feed from the SEC and I would often get my assignment for the morning from uh, the SEC when it, I don't know, like uh, someone would file and I'd be like, ah, oh, stop the presses. You know, I'm so excited. And I would get really hype and go read all the data and like start to, you know, just take notes and it was great. And now I wake up and I check it and it's just like tumbleweeds going by. <laughs> Nobody. So the tumbleweeds. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I miss the easy layup traffic because it was like, it was, look, I'm human. I'm lazy. Now I have to think it's terrible. <laughs> Anyways, on that note, let's pivot to Africa. We have been tracking the African continent as a publication, I think much more in the last 18 months and more so in the last three years than we have in our history. And it's not just because we are opening our lens a little bit, even though we are, it's also because African startups have been incredibly busy and they're putting up numbers that are eye-catching and we just really are being pulled by the gravitational kind of weight and heft of these companies. Natasha, and there was some news about a new country having its first company in YC, I think. Yeah, I mean, and it's hard at this point for anyone in startups to talk about Africa without mentioning our two reporters, which I love. Annie and Tej have been just doing such a great job on the beat. And her most yes. recent piece is the root for our theme this week. So Annie basically uncovered that Uganda is now in the spotlight after, for a long time, the startup ecosystem in Africa was really dominated by Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, and Egypt. They still are the big four, but as she kind of uncovered in her story, the first Ugandan startup made it into the Y Combinator Accelerator, which sure is one data point, but it's more like we're seeing success being replicated across other countries. And that is such a healthy sign of success not being one off. And in Africa, it's always been like fintech in Kenya. And now it's <laughs> other sectors everywhere. <laughs> okay. To be clear though, fintech in Kenya has been popping off. So like, yeah. like that has been a key story to watch and fintech has been kind of the constant theme. But I think we are seeing a, an increasing array of startups though. I think the one in, we talked about Dash recently, which was from Ghana. And I was going to bring it up as this like, oh my gosh, look, an African company raised a 32, $33 million seed round, but it's fintech. And so I'm worried that now it's not cool because Natasha has thrown a bucket it of is. cold water. It's, it's insane, Marianne, when you, remembering your reaction to that seed round during our prep meeting, I think reminded me of where we're at. Even though yeah. it's fintech, it's still like a $33 million seed. I mean, yeah. my first thought was about all equity because like that's a yeah. lot of money for a seed round, even here in the US, but much less an emerging market like Africa. So I was, I was impressed by the number, I have to say. Um, it was led by Insight Partners, which is, I believe, based in New York and they're a private equity and venture capital firm. This is another example of where global investors or U.S. investors are now like paying attention to their region in a way 
that they did not before. And very quickly back to Uganda, we didn't talk about another company called Safebode, which became the first African startup to receive investment yes. from the Google Fund in December. You know, these are just, I guess, like different signals of this market really just getting more interesting and compelling and attracting global investor interest, which is what I feel like where Latin America was about four or five years ago. And now every other Latin American company is a unicorn. There are so many to count that it's, I mean, I feel like at this point, you probably don't even cover each of them when they hit that milestone. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. I, I think definitely there's, you know, Africa's, it's growing like crazy, like Latin America did or has over the past few years. I love that we're seeing more diversity in terms of which countries are being the recipients of venture dollars. Definitely fintech is huge, but it's not just fintech, right? Like there's e-commerce. What, what are some yeah. of the other sectors that are attracting capital there? Those are the two biggest ones to me, because I think about Jumia, being a public tech company from Africa. They're kind of like the Amazon for Africa to some degree. They do kind of like payments tech and deliveries and logistics and e-commerce. And so they're kind of a broad thing. But I mean, thinking about where tech can have an enormous impact now, we are seeing e-commerce and fintech and also health tech. There's mm-hmm. some uh, startups working on delivery of medications and others kind of similar things around. And so to me, we're taking cool bits of tech, applying to a market that has less smartphone penetration and so forth. And it's having a robust impact. And that means human lives are improving which is really the end result of what everything should be. If I can put on my human hat and take off my capitalist hat for a minute. Yeah, it's like the promise of venture capital. So I think that we need to see more late stage VCs there for sure. Because while YC and Google are exciting, it's still, it's obvious, but like venture capital is nowhere near where it should be in Africa anyways. So I hope we see late stage actually set up roots there. That is such a positive take on venture capital. Instead of uh, refuting it with a rude and sarcastic joke, I'm just going to note that we are way over time and we have been told to shut up and go away. So we're going to do that. (laughs) If you are listening to this on the podcast app on a Friday, in two weeks, we'll be back live. We're going to go now answer some questions and hang out with our friends on Hoppin. We're also on Twitter spaces and so forth. So swing by in two weeks. We do this every two weeks. I'm Alex. I have Natasha and Marianne with me, my absolute favorites. And uh, we'll be back ASAP. Goodbye. Bye. 